Can do, I'm powered off. All right, now we're on, I think. Uh, last week, you guys got your 23-minute long Christmas present. Uh, this week, you won't. <laughs> All right, go with me to Matthew. A little bit of catching up to do. Matthew chapter, where are we, 19, 18? I probably ought to know. 18. Cruising right through, book of Matthew. We're going to finish out 18 today. I'm going to go ahead and read 21 to the end, which says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which is also 70 times seven, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience on me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you of all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Happy New Year. It's going to be, be a good New Year's text, actually. Forgiveness. Um, we need to remember, as we do this, that uh, a text like this that we just read is directly connected to the text that's in front of it. And the reason I need to remind you of that is because it's been three weeks since you heard that. And so it's, it's, it, it, can be, it can be just jointed for us to come here from week to week, be in a text, and, and then we have these, these little things on top of it, like these spaces between paragraphs, which makes us think that this is a whole other thing, and that's not true. That's just for easy reference sometimes, like here. So, so what I'm trying to say is that the text that we just read is directly connected to what Chad preached three weeks ago that preceded it. That subject... If we are to uh, summarize, it had to do with church discipline. It's what Jesus called church discipline. And we found out there in Jesus' teaching that church discipline has a goal in mind, not of condemning, not of uh, just correcting, but restoring and redeeming something that's been broken. Like that's the point of why when offense happens or sin against somebody happens that we, we go. We want to see it restored, redeemed fixed, right? That's the whole uh, point of that. So, so Jesus there is like, hey, if you see your brother sin against you, here's the steps that you can take to restore it and to repair it. And then we got Peter here, and all he can think about is like, to what extent? Like, when can I stop? 
right? And uh, this is why I love him. It's just me. Peter's me, I am him. Uh, verse 21, we see this coming off of that previous subject. And Peter came up, said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I uh, forgive him? So, so when can I stop working towards restoration? That's a better question, he thinks. When can I stop working towards repair? Uh, like, where's the finish line of reconciliation and for forgiveness? So Peter's basically like putting out a feeler um, as to see where the line is, where the threshold is uh, for forgiveness. And a lot of you have been wanting to know the answer to this, so you're going you're gonna to get it today, all right? Um, at the same time, what Peter's doing is he's, he's also trying to sound or appear somewhat spiritual with what he's saying here because he answers his own question immediately and says, seven times, Lord? So he asks the question, and then he answers it right away. Uh, and he appears to be spiritual in this, in his answer, because his number seven that he throws out is generous compared to what the rabbis had previously established in our Old Testaments and in the law, which is three. Uh, if, you, if you forgive somebody three times, according to the rabbis, then you've, you've done your job and you can take them off the list now, Right? And so, like, Peter's, like, uh, basically, like, doubling that number and then adding one for good measure or whatever. I don't know what. He sounds, it sounds really, really good of Peter, you know. It, I think it's meant to make everybody standing there uh, go, like, oh, what, a good, what a good-hearted guy Peter is, you know. And, and, uh, and it's easy for us to bag on Peter for being, you know, such a human being, uh, trying to figure out where the line is. But um, we all want to know where it's at. I mean, the truth is that this is the kind of world that we find ourselves living in. Um, we live in a world of easy offenses and quick cancels, even as Christians, even here in the church, among the people of God. And because this is true, what Jesus says next is a bit radical, right? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 seven times or 70 times seven. So num some of you right now are like doing the arithmetic, okay, uh, in your heads, because you want to know where the line is too, okay? It's not just, not just like, when can I stop, right? And, and you're like, okay, seven times 70 is 400, 490. 490 is the number when we can stop. And the, on the only way you're ever going to get there is if you're married and you have a long marriage. Like that's the only, just ask my wife. <laughs> she's, she's got a running tally. She's like, 439, you know. Listen, I don't care who you are. If someone in your life is going to blow it that many times against you, you're just going to lose count, okay? You're going to start to lose count. It's just going to be a lot. Um, if, if you're dealing with a serial offender, you're not going to care what number they're up to. You're just going to be over it. You're just going to be done with it after a while. Unless, of course, you're super spiritual like me, knowing that love keeps no record of wrongs, right? All right. This is really what Jesus is saying here. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is what he's saying. He's, he, what he's saying to Peter is, no, you just keep forgiving, Peter. Like forgiveness is infinite. It's infinite. Take whatever number you come up with and just keep running. Just keep going. So in other words, the amount of times that you forgive is not what's significant, but that you continue to forgive is what's significant. 
Do we understand that? This is what Jesus is saying here. That forgiveness reigns. That forgiveness triumphs in our lives. That forgiveness prevails is the point. And then, in perfect Jesus fashion, we get a story that follows, right? Having to do with this. Um, let's just take 23, 24. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speed through this, make a couple quick comments, and then we'll, we'll come back and, and pull a couple big things out of here. So, uh, the kingdom of heaven, uh, verse 23, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he became to settle, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Again, What's the biggest subject, the greatest subject that Jesus talked about, head and shoulders over anything else in the scriptures, especially in the Gospel of Matthew? What is it? The kingdom. Nothing's bigger than the kingdom. There's no subject greater than the kingdom. And the reason is because everything falls beneath the banner of the kingdom. Everything does. Everything's about the kingdom of God. So we have parable after parable after parable, story after story, allegory after allegory, all Jesus unpacking being a really good storyteller, a really good teacher, so to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to step out. We can talk about this later. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, I'm going to say it's interchangeable, okay? I know some people like to make distinctions. I don't, I don't think our scriptures do. But the kingdom of heaven. And what the kingdom of heaven is, is wherever, just to keep this really simple, God reigns or God rules. Kingdom of heaven. Wherever God has a standard and he holds people to that standard and he reigns over it and he rules over it, that's the kingdom. So some of you will be like, well, is that now or is that later? The answer is yes. Yes. Now and later. All right. So, so this dude in the story owes 10,000 talents. Okay. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but like when I looked into this this week, uh, my estimations uh, that this would be the equivalent of millions of dollars in today's economy. Millions. So it's a ridiculous number. To give you an idea of how big this number would have been at the time, I also read that the entire revenue for an entire year, for the entire region of Galilee at that time was 300 talents. 300 for the whole re region of Galilee for a year. So this is uh, a ridiculous uh, number. It's huge. This 10,000 uh, talent number Jesus is throwing out in his story probably sounded a little bit inflated, maybe a little bit exaggerated to his disciples when they heard this. Um, but we'll, we'll get to why that's probably not true. Verses 25 uh, and 27 say, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him to have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, a master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. How many times have you said this in your life, right? This is what this dude says, and it's like, really? Like, with what? You know what I mean? With what? And we will obviously come back to this, but I'm pretty sure that everybody in this story, including him, was quite certain that he wouldn't be able to. Like, that even it was an impossibility, even that he would be able to do such a thing. And nevertheless, this is what he's promising, right? And nevertheless, the master allows him to walk. He allows him to go free that day. Ridiculous amount of money erased, which is incredible. That's a, that's a large amount of mercy. 
So let's see how this life-changing mercy he received played out in his life, right? 2830, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. And uh, so his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused, and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt, okay? Um, the extreme mercy that this guy was shown uh, didn't seem to be very life-changing. It did not seem to have much of an impact on him after it happened. It didn't seem to make a dent in his worldview or the compassion and mercy that he would extend then, reciprocate towards others. Uh, I mean, homie like choked this guy, right? So he wasn't just like, hey, dude, like you owe me some money, let's have it, right? He choked him, which is a little funny and a little crazy. He's in a full-on violent rage, okay? So he's just been forgiven millions, free and clear, and he comes across the dude who owes him a hundred days pay, basically. A denarii was basically what an average worker in the field, agriculture-wise, made at that time, one denarii a day. So this is like maybe like three months worth of pay that this other guy uh, owes him, and he chokes him out for it, right? Now, I can't help to think but if, that if you've just been forgiven millions of dollars that you'd be running around, how many of you watched It's a Wonderful Life last week? Oh, you should have. What's wrong? What's wrong? It's one of the best, right? He goes into this whole thing where everything that he knows, loves in life gets turned on its head. And the dude's given perspective. It's like he's in a nightmare that he can't wake up from, right? There's value that's then placed on the life that he had that he never knew before. And when he comes out of this nightmare and everything's fixed, he has perspective, you would think that this guy would be like Jimmy at the end, right? Like running through the streets and singing and laughing and skipping and hugging people. But uh, he's not. This dude's choking a dude immediately. Usually being forgiven of a debt results in a crucifying of any kind of pride, any kind of entitlement, any kind of anger that we may have towards our brother, but this dude's quick to crucify the next guy fast, like right away. So he does the exact opposite of what was just done to him, but on a much smaller scale. And his cry is, give me what you owe me. Give me what you owe me. Imagine if God said this to you on the last day when you go and stand before him. Give me what you owe me. Give me what you owe me. I can't even imagine being face-to-face -face with God and having this be the greet, be the words that I hear when I see him. But this guy ends up locking this dude up until he pays, okay? Um, I kind of want to see this guy get his comeuppance, you know what I mean? Um, that's what my grandma used to say. When she wanted to beat me at cards, she'd be like, you ready for your comeuppance? And I'd be like, what? <laughs> you know, she, like, I'm, I'm going to whoop you now, okay, little man? Uh, I kind of want to see this guy get it. Verses 31 through 34 say this. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So apparently in this story, in this parable, not only did this guy nearly choke his debtor out, but he did it openly. He did it in public. He did it in front of everybody. That's pretty cold, right? When his fellow servants witnessed this occur because it was done in front of them, they were like, oh, heck no, right? And they, uh, it was so ugly that they run back and tell their master what this dude that he just pardoned did. And, of course, the master wasn't having it either. So he calls this guy back in and basically says, how wicked can you possibly be? How cold can you possibly be? Like, what were you thinking? You pleaded, I had mercy. This guy pleaded, you didn't, right? So now you're going to feel what this guy felt, right? And he locks him up. And then, of course, we have the conclusion. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. How many of you are clean right now with forgiveness? We good? Everyone on a clean everyone in your life that's ever wrong, you got a clean slate in your heart? I hope so. Okay. All right. We're gonna get there. I want to zoom out for a second. So we got this, we got this conclusion, right? Um, ha, like it sounds right to me, this conclusion when it comes to this guy in the story. I'm not so sure when it comes to me. Um, I'm not so sure that I want to be held by the same uh, uh, standard when it comes to me. Um, but this guy, I'm sure, got absolutely what he uh, deserved. If we zoom out, there's a couple observations here that I think we need that will help us with this text, okay? Um, first off, this guy owes a debt that he can never pay back. Bottom line, I don't care how you cut it, how you look at it. This guy owes a debt that he can never pay back. It's an absolute impossibility the number that Jesus throws out here, and what this dude does for a living, which we'll get to. The amount is too insurmountable, not just numerically, millions in today's economy, right? But also practically, because if we read the parable for what it says, this dude has no real means in which to generate that kind of revenue that he would need in order to clear himself, in order to pay back. How do I know that? Because according to Jesus' parable, this man is not a free man. He's a slave. He's dealing with his master. He's dealing with his owner. And so the only shot the master has at recovering anything at all from this guy is to sell him off, along with his wife, along with his kids, and all of his possessions, and call it good. Like basically cut his losses. In, in other words, this guy, as confident as he may be and sincere as he may have been in paying back the master, is in no position to. Absolutely no position to. Because slaves didn't get that rich. They didn't prosper to that degree. They didn't build financial portfolios. Right? They didn't invest. They didn't have startups that netted them millions of dollars in this day. Right? Like this dude was owned. This guy was in bondage. He was a slave. Sound familiar? Spiritually, we're coming back to that. 
right? This guy's in over his head. Bottom line, on multiple levels, the debt is too great. It's too great, and yet, I'm going to pay it back, which brings us to the second thing, right? I'll pay, he says, quote, I'll pay everything back, unquote. That's what he says to the master. So, so, um, this is so, this is so like me. This is so like us, isn't it? I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. The, the need to earn, the need to merit, the need to deserve, the need to make things right on our own, right? Without, without anyone's help so that everybody knows we did it. We did it. I still do this when someone buys me lunch. I'll get, I'll, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get this back for you. You know, they're like, what do you mean? Like, it was a gift I took you out. No, I'm going to get you back. You know what I mean? Do it all the time. Even in circumstances where we're clearly in over our heads in our actually, actual ability to earn or merit or deserve that which we owe, our instinct is that we will. Our intention is that we will. Our desire is that we will. This is called pride. And it's not the good kind, uh, but it's the kind that kills us while it makes us feel good about ourselves. Okay, uh, it's the, it, it, it like kills us while we think we're fixing something that we're not really fixing. Um, we, all of us, like this guy, have a pretty high estimation of ourselves, don't we, before God? We're in complete bondage, in over our heads, with sin, rebellion, corruption, sinful, uh, sinfulness, before a holy God, but our first thought and intention when we stand before him is, I'll pay it back. I promise. I'll make it up. I'll make it good. I'll make it right. And the question is, with what? With what? We are spiritually bankrupt. We are unable to generate capital when it comes to righteousness and holiness that originates within ourselves. I don't know how many times I've told God, I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again, right? Like, I'll, I'll never say that again. I'll never think that again, right? I, like, I'm done with that for good this time. I, I promise. I'll make it up, right? Only to find myself on my knees in front of him once again, pleading, repenting of the exact same thing because I don't know how to. I don't know how to. I don't know how to generate the currency of righteousness apart from his. And if the Bible's right, you don't either. Right? If you're honest. Um, our righteousness according to the word of God is what? That's filthy rags. And again, I don't want to you know, gross anyone out or get crazy on this, but that is uh, one of the most disgusting things, if you know what's being talked about, that we can think of. And this is exactly what you and I do when we get in trouble with God and we say, I'll pay you back for that, is we pull out this thing that the Bible says is filthy rags. We're looking at it and going, this is our best. This is really good. And we're holding these rags up, saying, isn't this awesome? Isn't this beautiful? I told you I'd pay you back. And he's seeing nothing but disgust. You and I do not have the ability to generate the currency, the revenue that is required of us spiritually. This is the whole problem, and this is the problem with that dude that day. This is part of the story here, right? See, it's our, it's our lack of ability to produce a debt-free relationship with God that has gotten you and I into this mess to begin with. We are the problem. 
Don't go there for the solution. You must go outside of yourself, right? But we still say, give me another chance, I'll fix it. Well, God knows better, doesn't he? He knows better. We say, I'll pay it back, and he says, no, you won't. He knows, no, you won't. No, you won't, which brings us to the next observation. This man's debt forgiveness came through compassion, not payback. His debt forgiveness came through compassion, not payback. It was the compassion of the master that got this dude off the hook that day. Nothing else. Nothing else. The master told the guy how high the payback was, and then he ate it himself. Himself. This man's forgiveness released freedom to walk as if nothing ever happened was due to the king's compassion, plus nothing. Nothing. This is the part that trips people up when it comes to the gospel, isn't it? It doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem possible, it doesn't seem fair. That debt forgiveness, the debt forgiveness of God is absolutely free. We just can't wrap our heads around that because nothing in this world is free. We feel like that's wrong. There's no self-gratification in it. There's no glory in it for ourselves. You know what I'm saying? This is the foolishness of the gospel for so many people, but this is the reality of the gospel. This is actually the beauty of the gospel is that it's absolutely free. It's a free gift of God, not of works, you know the rest of it, so that no one may boast, so that nobody will be able to steal any of the glory and say, I did that, except for him. It is the Trinity for all eternity that are the only ones that are going to be boasting in what it is that they have done according to who's there and why. Only the Trinity. Not you and me, right? Um, this is kind of the point where a lot of you go, well, wait a minute, what about the conclusion? This is the part that stinks, right? I didn't even want to um, teach on this part today. I just wanted to skip it. Um, what about the conclusion? What about the rest of the story? Clearly, the master's compassion toward debt forgiveness is conditional, because that's how it reads conditional. The caveat being that we must first forgive the same way in order for God to forgive us that way, right? In other words, his forgiveness is contingent on our ability to perform the same thing that he did. From the heart, no less. So that makes it even worse. So uh, from the heart means like sincerely, fully, uh, finally, like done. Almost like perfect forgiveness right? This is absolutely true and absolutely brutal according to the law. You're like, here he goes again. Law gospel stuff. It's the way he explains everything. Sorry, I can't help it. He's trying to help us read our Bibles, right? So we don't get convoluted gospels in our head, okay? This is absolutely true that it's conditional according to the law, but praise God, not according to the gospel not according to the gospel. See, this is why we need to make sure that we are not under the law. And you don't have to be a Jew to be under the law. You could be a Gentile and place yourself under the law because all it is is the plan that this dude went off of, the pay you back plan. I'll make sure that I do everything you ask of me perfectly so that I earn every bit of what I need to earn. That's just being under the law. I don't care what your genealogy is or what your nationality is, right? 
Um, This is why we need to make sure that we're not under the law, because if we are, we're in serious trouble. We will not be able to keep our end of the deal. We will not be able to do it. The gospel came so that we may be uh, relieved from having to keep a law that we could not keep by our own strength and be brought to God through the one who was able to keep it for us. This is the good news. Listen to Galatians 4.4, okay? We just had Christmas, right? Here's a great Christmas text. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born where? Under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is Christmas. Jesus didn't come just to look cute in a manger so that we could have cute songs about a baby. Like he he came to redeem us out from under something that was crushing us and killing us. Something that condemned us fully and completely, that being the law. He had to pull us out from underneath that car so that we can actually be with God and know God and enjoy God because we could not do it as long as we stayed down underneath that thing that only kills, that only kills, right? Here's a biblical teaching on this. The law places us on the pay-it-all-back plan every time. Hopefully this helps you read your Bibles a little bit. The law places us on the pay-it-all-back plan. The gospel places us on the paid-in-full plan. These are not the same. These are different. One kills, one saves. One condemns, one redeems. One breeds pride, the other humility. One binds and keeps us bound. One frees and liberates based on what? the master's compassion towards those he pardons. Again, the gospel doesn't say he loves me, he loves me not. The law does. Furthermore, let me submit to you that Jesus' final conclusion of the master's conditional mercy on this man was not a direct result of this man's own righteousness in forgiveness, but rather his rejection of God's forgiveness. Is it weird to you guys that this guy walks away and chokes the next guy that he sees? Do you know why? Because he's still going to make sure he pays back his master, even though he's been let go free and clear. That's this guy's downfall. That's his downfall. He choked the first debtor he saw because his intention was to still pay back everything that he owed rather than receive the free gift of a pardon. And again, this is the stumbling block to most people with the gospel. Surely we have to earn, we have to do something. Surely. And the gospel doesn't allow us to. It allows God to be the only one who does. And so when we reject a free forgiveness and say, I'm going to pay it back anyway, guess where you're at again? Under the law. You're right back to where you started. He didn't ultimately go to jail because he didn't ultimately forgive perfectly. He went to jail because he refused bail. That's basically what we see in the story. He refused the bail that was posted for him by the master. That's why he went to jail. This is the challenge of every man before the gospel. Having said all that, let's shift gears slightly. We're almost there. 
Forgiveness is one of the greatest, strongest, most powerful evidences and testimonies that the child of God can possibly possess and display and walk well in. You and I should. There's a gazillion scriptures in the New Testament writings to believers, those under the gospel, not under the law, concerning the importance of forgiveness. And it's due to the fact that this is the foundation of our spiritual, moral freedom that we all enjoy, even right now, right here. And I, though I fully believe that one of the sins that Jesus hung on the cross on our behalf for was our inability to perfectly forgive, forgiveness should be something Christians ought to be better at doing in this world than anybody else. Anybody else. The gospel gives us as believers every reason to forgive and zero reasons not to due to what Jesus did for us, due to what Jesus did to us and in us. If we, the believer, do not forgive or even care if we do or don't forgive, there's a good chance that we don't know the gospel of Jesus at all. I know that's a hard statement, but I believe it to be a true one. There's a good chance if we don't care about forgiving and we love holding on to grudges that we have never experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ for ourselves. For ourselves. There's a good chance that we don't know him. There's a good chance he doesn't know us. Because that is a byproduct. That's the foundation of all things that he has done to us, in us, with us. Forgiveness, the mercy. The gospel is not, listen to me, the gospel is not a passive idea or a passive thought or a passive concept. It is a faith that results in works. It is a faith that results in change. It is a faith that results in transformation. The gospel, well, if you've been born again, brings to you an extreme makeover inside. Doesn't mean you're perfect overnight, but it means that there's going to there's, there's gonna be some renovations that start immediately, that start immediately. The gospel is fully loaded. It is not empty, right? Jesus didn't just, the gospel is not that Jesus just took something from us. We've talked about this before. He didn't just take our sins and that's it. Now we can go to heaven because we're clean. He also gave us things. He gave us a life that you and I could not live. And in that, he imparted to us new desires and good works that we should walk in. I want things now that I never used to want. And I can't explain that naturally. That's not like me. I know what I like. The fact that I started liking righteousness, like loving what God loves and hating what God hated, that's not something I woke up and decided to do one day. That's something that the Holy Spirit started doing in me. And one of the primary um, characteristics of that thing that I have a need for now and a desire for is to see broken stuff reconciled. Even when someone wrongs me, even when someone betrays me and stabs me in the back, because you know what? It can never amount to what I've done to God. It can never amount to that. And he has freely, freely, freely said, you may walk now. I've taken care of your debt. This is what Christianity is based on. This is the foundation of everything that you and I enjoy every day. Where am I? All right, a couple quick things. I'm really going to close this time. Check it out. Um, Forgive and forget sounds really nifty. It sounds really nice, but the forget part's not super realistic for you. It's just not as human beings. 
all right? So I want to I want to consider real quick again this this ridiculous number of 490, 70 times seven, um, because our memory, our memory, this thing that we still walk around with, is often our biggest enemy in the ongoing pursuit of finalizing forgiveness towards another. Because when our brain recalls the offense, whether it be years or months later, all the hurt and all the pain and all the betrayal and all the anger and all the bitterness floods right back again. And guess what's required again? Forgiveness. Even though you've already forgiven them 50 times prior to that, right? Number doesn't sound that ridiculous when we're talking about our inability to forget things that have been done. And it is at this point, each and every time, that we are needing to forgive that same offense, that same person for that same offense, once more, over and over again, that we thought we were completely over. Because you're not completely over it. Therefore, you and I as believers need a lifestyle, a daily lifestyle of forgiveness. A daily lifestyle of reconciliation. A daily lifestyle of forgiving debt that's been done to us because it is daily that our brains will go after us, right, with people and things. Um, Much of the time we will be forgiving that same person for the same thing over and over again. Uh, Women, for you, uh, there are times your husband will do something in a dream that offends you. Uh, Forgive him. Some of you know, two of you know what I'm talking about, good. Uh, My wife's still mad at me sometimes for dreams. Uh, He wasn't present, okay? So just let him go on it. Just let him go. Um, And and when you start thinking about things like this, you know, 490, it doesn't look like like that that crazy of a number. So um, uh, we need to do uh, forgiveness daily. Think about this. Think about what Jesus taught us when he taught us how to pray. Give us this day, our daily bread. So it means that we're going to be maybe having this conversation daily because we all usually eat bread daily, right? And forgive us, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That means this is maintenance. This isn't an event. This is a lifestyle of forgiveness that must be done. We must examine ourselves daily to see where we're at with who, right? We must keep short accounts. We must not let the sun go down on our anger and bitterness and resentment, right? Or it will set out to undo that which Christ has set out to do in us, right? It's a cancer if we leave it there. Because we don't forget very well, we we need to forgive really well. Uh, Number two, the greatest answer, solution, remedy for the unforgiving heart that we will sometimes find within ourselves is always a fresh visit to the cross. This is the cure, people. When I get crazy with someone and I'm I'm just finding it hard to, like, let go of something, that's all I have to do. I just need to look at the cross again. I just need to visit the cross of Christ again, a fresh and current survey of that place where my master let me walk free, right? Right? where he let me walk clean and new and forgiven, where my bills were paid, where my bills were paid, where my debt was relieved, where my Savior prayed with his dying words, forgive him, forgive David. He doesn't know what he's doing. He just doesn't get it. He knows not what he does. I need that. I need that survey. 
I need to look at that place where my shameful, pitiable condition was clothed, clothed by his compassion. By his compassion. Listen to, listen to this. Let's close with this. I promise we're going to close with this. Colossians, uh, you guys are all familiar with this chapter too. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By, the can- by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers in doing so and the authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is our rap sheet that we're talking about here. And it's not small, it's big. And what happened to that rap sheet? He took it and he nailed it to a cross so that I no longer had to bear it and so that you no longer have to bear it too by faith, by receiving his compassionate debt forgiveness. I love how at the end it talks about him putting to an open shame the authorities and the rulers because they're going to try to tell you that you can pay it back. They're going to tell you that, or they're going to tell you that Jesus didn't really pay for that. There's going to be all kinds of things going on, but when he did his deal, he did it once for all. When he walked away from the tomb, he did it once for all. When he ascended into heaven where he's at the right hand of God, he's done it once for all. He has crushed the head of Satan and all that have come to tell us lies that God will not reconcile to me, that he doesn't love me, that he didn't die for that. Christ killed all that, nailed to the cross, right? Free. And so it's the reception of the free gift of God that gives us God, not payback. Spurgeon said, I owed a debt I could not pay, but he paid a debt he did not owe. That's what the cross says when we look at it, when we survey it. Um, When we go to the cross, it does two things. Number one, it reminds us that we've been forgiven. And number two, it cures us of an attitude of unforgiveness towards others. It does both those things at the cross. All right, one more Spurgeon quote. Got to do it. Got to get them in there. Uh, We come to the cross, he says, for forgiveness, but we stare at the cross to be forgiving. And I like that. This is what we're talking about here. It's not threat that creates good modification behavior in our lives that please God. It's, it's, it's the fact that, um, that we've been compassionately discharged from everything that we owe that makes us run to the master and live for him and please him and, in, and, and enjoy him. We can enjoy him. And this table right here, that's what it does. It reminds us of that. Every time we come to this table, that's exactly what it tells us. This right here is, is your payment, basically, <laughs> right? Right in front of you, tangibly. Not, not at your expense, but at God's expense through his son, right? His blood, his body for you. This is your ransom. This is how you were redeemed out from under your own good works, which aren't good at all, and the law is because Christ went and did this for us. And so if that's your only hope, we invite you to come and we invite you to enjoy and worship once more 
in the accomplishment of Christ on your behalf. If you've never done that before, maybe maybe today's the day, right? Because again, it doesn't require you doing something. It requires you receiving that which he's already done for you. Do you believe that? Lord, thank you so much for even just weird texts <laughs> like this that are difficult. We, th- we thank you, God, that no matter where we're at in the Bible, no matter how hard it hits, that it, it just all points back to your work. And, and so we thank you, God, first and foremost, for a compassion that we did not deserve from you, and yet that we have in full from you. We thank you for giving us Jesus. We thank you for proving your love there. We thank you that there's now nothing against us, that you're holding against us, that we haven't tied up because your son's tied it all up. And so we just, I pray that we would just find, be amazed by that in a new, fresh way today, all of us. And even someone that's maybe never been amazed by it before, God, I pray that you would impart, that you would grant them repentance and that you would install this this reality of who you are and what you've done into their heart today, that they may know you, that they may live. And we ask it in your name. Amen.